0: Okay, so again, welcome. I hope all of you are well on this Tuesday. So we are in 1 Corinthians. We're going to return to 1 Corinthians um, 13 today. So we just kind of got into that a little bit last week as class was ending, but there was more I wanted to say and talk about around 1 Corinthians. So I'm glad all of you all are here. And um, we will be here on Tuesdays until... Patty and I and some of the few folks and Lauren are all gone to Israel. But that's still a few weeks away. I think we live three weeks from next Sunday. Patty and I do. We leave three weeks from next Sunday, I think. So it's upon us. And I think it's actually going to happen. This was a trip that was going to happen in 2020. Yeah. Okay. And it's gotten pushed back and pushed back. But now I think it's going to happen. So I'm how real... How
1: many,
0: how many do you have? 90. Oh, 90. Oh, we body, maxed body. it out again. Good. Yeah. I've got two buses. Leo and Neil. Ninety people, yeah, kind of the same drill. What? <laughs> we will. We'll say hi for you. Yes, we sure will. So let's see. I don't really have anything else in the way of announcements. Is the sound good in here? Is it, is it high enough and everything for you? You can hear well. OK? And, and I now hit the buttons correctly, so the streaming's working. I think I only hit the streaming button once instead of twice. And thus, I was leaving the streamers hanging out there, but we're all together now. Okay? So, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are very, very grateful to be able to be here today on this Tuesday to take time out of our busy week to come together to study your word, to immerse ourselves in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Um, and as we do each week, we pray that your spirit would fill us with energy and enthusiasm and thoughtfulness. And um, as we make our through our way through the portions of this letter that are easier for us to grasp, and the portions that are more challenging, all this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so. Where I want to start is I'm just going to start by reading into you know 13 4 because the challenge when you come to 1 Corinthians 13 is resting it and extracting it from the wedding contexts right and helping us see in it more than the sentiment a wonderful sentiments expressed at weddings because this is actually a very striking passage. And you've probably heard me say that um, in the biblical meaning, the word love is not something you feel. It's something you do. Love is action, not feeling, not sentiment. And so if you were to wonder like, where in the Bible would I go to see that? It's right here in 1 Corinthians 13. But it's a little bit masked for us in the English so we're going to we're going to dance a little bit in the Greek way in just a few minutes okay so let's just read the opening paragraph which really it's very easy to understand what Paul is talking about he says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Because he's talked to them about the tongue speaking and all that stuff. And he doesn't, he doesn't intend to put any of that down. But he says, let me lead you to, to what is even more excellent. More important. More significant. More excellent. 13.1. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong, or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy. Prophecy meaning simply bringing God's word to the people. Like the prophets of old did. They weren't, they weren't crystal ball gazers. They, the prophets of old were men and women who brought God's word to God's people. Sometimes it was written down. Sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes it wasn't acted. Sometimes it wasn't. So if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Right? That's preparing us for love being in the preeminent position. Right? Which should not surprise us. Because we know from um, John's letter, 1 John, that God simply is love. That is fundamental to our to our proclamation that God God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, (sighs) relationships of love that are carried in the very unity of God's being, which then prepares us so that when Jesus is asked, what are the greatest commandments, and he's got a whole bunch to choose from, right? He says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself which come from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So, so, but what we today have to do is to understand what God means by love. That's why I teach it so often, to talk about the fact that it's not a feeling, it's what you do. Uh, yes.
1: my version doesn't use the word
0: love. What does it use? You have an older translation. Charity is an old word that is usually spoken of as love. So the greatest of these is charity. A better translation for the way we use words today would be love. Really. Okay. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Everything we do has to be guided and shaped by love. God said, Love, <laughs> love God and love others. I mean, that's, that's the core. The love God's the vertical on the cross, love others is the horizontal on the cross. There's lots of ways that preachers do this um, to try to help us get out of the love being a, a sentiment. Because you, you could say to me, Well, I can't love my enemy. I've got a neighbor I find incredibly annoying, much less my enemy. <laughs> but, this, but love is not about what you feel about a person. It's what you do for that person, with that person, to that person. You can treat an enemy well. You can, as, as the book of Exodus says, you, you can find your enemy's wallet on the ground and take it to him. In Exodus, it's find your enemy's oxen tied to a tree, but that isn't something most of us are presented with. But suppose you find your sworn enemy's wallet on the ground. You can pick it up, look in it, see there's $5,000 cash, and still take it to them whole. That's what love is. Taking it back, taking your enemy's stuff and giving it to them back. Even if you don't feel like it. Charlotte? Oh, Paul's about to make it really clear. <laughs> so let's just let's just wait. Let's just hang on, hang on to that question. But is there a
1: point in
0: time when love became a sentiment? Oh, I think you know that's a real. So Charlotte's asking, when did love really become a sentiment? When did romance begin to enter into relationships and? marriages and everybody was you know everybody thought they needed to marry for romantic reasons and so <laughs> forth. You always had stories of of romance and it would typically involve big legendary people and kings and all that kind of stuff. But for the average person, romance enters into the world in a big way in the 19th century. Before the 19th century, nobody thought of marrying for romance. That, that was beyond people. People married to survive. They married to survive. I have a book on my shelf, The History of Marriage. It's really different than people think it is and it's another one of the ways in which we can trip up if we just take our world today and assume all this stuff is written for the world as it is today. Sure. This is not a world in which most people married for romance. There were seven different kinds of marriage. Some of them weren't really marriage at all in that world it was people getting by people finding a partner um in order to get through a what was often a very difficult brutal life most people were not people of means most people did not have affluence most people like i said you could think of the of the economic structure of the ancient world like the eiffel tower rich people not so rich people Tiny, middle class, and then boom, spreads out at the bottom to encompass most people who were, who were poor, or if they weren't, and perhaps slaves even. There were millions of slaves in the Roman Empire at this time, right? So romance is kind of a newfangled idea, in a way. Okay, anything else? So let's read again through verse 4 and then I will try to show you something as best I can because my slide is all messed up because I, I, I don't know, I just couldn't do what I wanted. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So, um, in English, it has to be written the way it is. Filled with adjectives. Love is what? Well, love is patient. Love is kind. Adjectives that modify the word love. In the Greek, it's not. In the Greek, there are no adjectives. Paul even takes adjectives, combines them together in completely unique ways in order to change them into a verb. In the Greek, the whole paragraph is nothing but verbs. Like like Sarah Rudin said, it's like a machine gun. Just Firing out verb. Boom, boom, boom. So I, I tried to make up this slide that was kind of, it comes from her book. I, I stunk at this. Because <laughs> what you have to vision, <laughs> so here's, yeah, I couldn't get the word processors and stuff to do what I wanted. So you have to envision that this is one block of letters. No spaces, no punctuation, none of that. Just all strung together, it's all it's all verbs. And I'm going to read to you what she says. And she knows far about, more about this than I think even most New Testament scholars do. Because this is how she makes her living. So she says it goes something like this. So, and oh, it's okay. so I'm going to read it. She says actually in the Mediterranean world they would read this stuff so fast. You know, as an English speaker, I hear people like native Spanish speakers. They talk so fast. It seems to me that the syllables are just pouring out. And I, I don't know how they keep sense of it all. But she said in the Mediterranean world, boy, they spoke very quickly. They read, they, she said they read about three times faster than the average person spoke. How they understood it, I I, I don't know. But you know, we grow up being able to understand all things, what we grow up with. You know, people sat through the Lincoln-Douglas debates for three hours. Can you imagine anybody in our time doing that? Sitting there three hours to hear two politicians debate. No. No. Our attention spans are about two and a half minutes. Uh, So here's her translation of it, and I will try to do some justice to it, not screw it up too badly. She says, well, let me read to you a little bit of her introduction, okay? She says, it's more or less a necessity of our language that the standard translations here contain a lot of adjectives. But the Greek is extreme in not containing a single one. Instead, we have a mass of verbs, things love does and does it do? This is the ultimate authority for the saying love is a verb. Since the wording is so simple I can translate the piece fairly literally without creating nonsense and she says she's gonna take out spaces and capitals and punctuation and all that stuff because none of them would have existed on the papyrus that the person would be reading from and she says you know if you read it really fast, it's going to produce something closer to the original machine gun of verbs. <laughs> See, The love endures, long acts kindly, the love not acts jealousy, not acts brutally, not boasts, not gets full of itself, not disgraces itself, not seeks what it is its own, not, not gets irritated, Not reckons up the evil, not rejoices in the injustice, but rejoices together in the truth. Believes everything, hopes everything, endures everything. The love never falls. Falls, not fails. Falls. And she said, in this, in the Greek, there are these places where Paul takes adjectives and turns them into a verb. Words never before seen, to our knowledge, in the Greek language. And why does he do that? Because he wants them to grasp that love is about what you do. Because even for the Greeks... It's easy to think of it as a sentiment. Because we all have feelings about people and that can mislead you. Um, it, it can make you blind to Christ's call to do. To consecrate a lot less on what you feel and on what you do. And my experience in life is that if you don't feel the way that you know that you probably should, if you will start acting, start doing the way that you would do if you felt the way that you know you should, that is the way to get to the feelings. Because you can't manufacture the feelings. So, so the way that you train your heart, because I've, I've counseled people in the past in, in marriage that said, well, I just don't love her anymore. What do I do? My counsel is simple. Do the things that you would do if you felt the way you want to feel and let those let those doings lead you to the feelings. Love is a verb. That's, you know, it's it's it sounds simple, but it's actually profound and very countercultural, very countercultural. Yes. I, I don't, Richard Hayes does not suggest anything like that. I think that this is trying to get them to move off their preoccupation with certain spiritual gifts like the tongue speaking and move on to something else and see that that's all fine, but let's get to the heart of the matter. This is the heart of the matter. This is the heart of the matter. Because he goes. Right? Because the last paragraph is going to bring us to exactly that point. right? Well, the greatest of these is what? he says in a few sentences. "The greatest of these is love. Right? And, and it's, it is.:
1: Look at the experience.: write something like this being a celibate man.
0: Well, cannot celibate people love? Why, you know, I, I, all, all celibate means is that Paul has never had sex. It doesn't mean he's never loved. Single people can love, they, they can love others, parents, friends, family, they could love someone deeply and intensely and have it be unrequited which is always a sad thing. So, so in our, see this is another thing in our culture, what do we do? I mean we, a lot of our culture wants to put those things together all the time and, and they can be pulled, they can be pulled apart. Yes? So,
1: Scott, would an example of love in the context that Paul is talking about
0: here be taking care of widows and orphans? Yes. Why? So the question is, would an example be taking care of widows and orphans? Yes. Would it be feeding the poor? Yes. Would it be sitting by the bedside of sick people you don't even know? Yes. Would it be what he tells um, um, Philemon about the slave Onesimus? I have that right? Yes. Okay. That, that 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 Philemon is to receive it's nice having her here. It's it's that, that Philemon is to receive this slave like a brother. He's to receive this slave like like he would receive Paul. Well that's crazy talk. Except that's what love is. It's an, it's an action. It's a verb. It's an action, 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 action. And then the seemingly outrageous things Jesus says that you say, to well, that's just just some ideal, fine, Jesus, fine, love your enemy, fine, 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 that's that's not happening. But you can't, for example, take warfare. (laughs) As in, how do you treat POWs? Right? That gets to the heart of that question. What is the loving way to treat somebody who is your enemy? Sometimes that gets turned into very concrete concrete decisions um, people, people have to make. Um, so, yeah, anything else before we go on? I'm going to take down that kind of an abomination of a slide there. <laughs> I thought I could get it to work. Okay, look at, look at verse 8. This is about where we finished last week, I think. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they're going to cease. Right? There are those who believe that indeed the prophesying that Paul speaks of ended with the end of the apostolic age. Many Christians believe that, that, in that, that, the, that age of tongue speaking and this prophesying ended 100 AD, to pick a date, with the end of the apostolic age. There are other Christians who would say, oh, no, 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 no. A nice, big, fat, intramural argument. But the point is, where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. All of that's temporary. For we know in part, right, we are extraordinarily limited in what we know and what we understand and what we could say about God, what we could say about others, what we could say about ourselves. One of the problems, I think, in our world today is that not enough people are humble about what they know. It seems they almost think there's no limitations on what we humans can come to understand and know about the world we live in and who we are. For we know, verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when time, but when completeness comes, when completeness comes, what do you think he means? Boom, boom. This, when all that's left is the age to come. When the kingdom of God, Jesus returns, and the kingdom of God is fully manifest and complete, or whatever words you want to use around that. That's what he's talking about. Now we're stuck between the times. Well, we'll have a foot in each of these ages—the age of sin and death, and the age to come—and we know in part. We prophesy in part. We, but when Jesus returns, it will be the time of completeness. What is in part, verse ten. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears because it's complete. When I was working through this, it reminded me of the passage from Jeremiah. When Jeremiah says, you know, the day is coming when God's law will be written on people's heart. It won't have to be written on tablets of stone. When When you will just know. When nobody will be coming to Bible studies because You will know Jesus yourself in a way that you can't now, because now you can only know Jesus in part. Verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Of course. Right? That's what children do. But when I became a man, an adult... I put the ways of childhood behind me, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. What does he mean, face to face? I can't help but think of the passage in Exodus when Moses wants to see God and God says, you can't see my face and live and so stand back in this little rocky cleft and I will pass by and you can see me from behind. Compared to the end of the book of Revelation when we are told we will see God face to face. That's why this Jesus' return here isn't just another little tiny increment up on an ever-upward trend. The return of Jesus will be the transformation of everything, the new heavens and the new earth. And it's not something we're going to bring about. We're not, we, we don't have it in us to bring about the full manifestation of God's kingdom. That is God's work. We're burdened by what? Why can't we do that? Well, one, we're not God, but... On our level, why can't we do that? Because we're burdened by this age that we still have one foot in. This age of sin and death. And it would be foolishness to deny that we are burdened by sin. Paul writes in Romans, "Ah, You know, I I do the things I know I shouldn't do, and I don't do the things I know I should. Of course we're still burdened by sin. Deny that, you're just denying the world's not going to make any sense to you if you deny the reality of human sinfulness, even amongst those who have come to faith in Christ. We are still burdened by that. We still have to fight and, and work to be ever truer disciples of Jesus and less sinful people, which means more, which means holier, holier people. Okay? Yes. Just got so hung up on maybe the, the nitpicking here of verse eight, charity never fails. Uh, by, they use the word charity. They okay, use the word love. Love fails. I mean, it does fail. But whether there be prophecies, uh, they shall fail. You do Isaiah on Monday, great prophet. I think His you're. I did something here. I think you're being too literal. Okay. With which surprises me with you, Don. I think you're being. I think you're being too literal. Uh, what, what is it, what is carrying this world forward? Love, love. Yeah. you know, and it's not just the love that we have for one another. It's God's love for us and our love for God. It's love that is carrying this this all forward because God could turn around and head off to somewhere else. So. You know you could say this is hyper- you know hyperbole on on paul's part, but i don't know i don't think it is i I think we don't really understand enough about what love is, and then we're not brave enough to actually do it, and we don't want to pay the price of actually sacrificially loving one another um, uh, Patty and I just finished watching a little television series, and at the end of it, there was a woman who... She, her life was kind of a wreck, and she took the punishment due her best friend's daughter. She confessed to a crime she didn't commit, so she would take the punishment for her best friend's daughter. She did that sacrificially. She was, in the whole series, she is presented as a devout Christian who's struggling to be a Christian in practice, right? Because it isn't always easy to be a Christian in practice. That's what, that's what Paul's letters are all about. So I, I, I would resist the notion of seeing it as, as being hyperbolic and instead see it as a call from Paul to to be more loving, which means to be more sacrificial, to be ready to act, to take care of others, and all the things we were just talking about a minute ago. And the second thing is, you, you, you we talked in Isaiah about the fact that there were a lot of the prophets brought these promises from God which went unfulfilled for centuries. But did that mean that God didn't keep God's promises. No, it just meant that God didn't keep them on the time frame the humans thought God would keep them. Because God kept them, how? In Jesus. That in Jesus, those prophecies of Isaiah came to pass, God's victory over sin and death was won, and the day will come with Jesus's return that the whole world will see and live within that within the kingdom of God. Even if now many people are still blind to it, which is how I would put it. It's not that the kingdom of God is a present, it's just that most people are blind to it. They they don't...
1: Here's
0: what I found. Oh, stop it. What could I have said that would have triggered that? Okay. So, yeah. Anyway, maybe that's helpful. Okay, so look at verse 12. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. He's just acknowledging that we're here. There are people Christians can fall into. <laughs> I'll give you the $10 word for it it's called an overrealized eschatology. And over that eschatology is failing to grasp that we aren't really here yet. That all the promises of God has already been delivered fully and completely and concretely and manifestly for everyone to see. Well, no, we still fight through cancer and the rest of it. So somehow we are here. And um, so Paul uses, here's just a way to describe it. We see in a mirror, but we only see dimly. But one day, see, when Paul is writing to the Philippians, what does he say? He says, well, I think I'm going, <laughs> I might well be executed, perhaps, but I'm ready to go because I'm ready to be with Christ. What does it mean to be with Christ? Could we remain as we are now and be with Christ? I think not. I think our hearts will grow Our understanding will grow. We'll uh, we'll still be us. Don will still be Don and Patty will still be Patty and I'll still be Scott. But to be with Christ, um, I I don't see how we could be unchanged by that. So Paul writes, For now we see only reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see... See face to face. And now, I know in part. Paul, this giant intellect of Paul, is acknowledging he only knows in part. So you put to Paul every question that you have. And I imagine Paul sometimes, gosh, I'd like to think this happened. Where where he would be getting peppered with questions from people. And he would eventually say, how the heck do I know? Right? <laughs> because he, he, he knows he's limited himself. That's why sometimes he will step up and he say, you know, now, I am speaking for the Lord. But that isn't even how he writes most of this. He doesn't invoke that on, in most of his writing. And I, I think we, we have to acknowledge that Paul was a man who knew in part and that feeds into our whole understanding of what it means to call Scripture God's Word and inspired and how we use it and how we read it and so forth. How we apply it. So he says, now I know in part, then, then, when all there is, is what the Jews called the age to come, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now that's interesting, you know? I'd like to ask him exactly what he means by that because I think God does fully know us, but maybe he just wants some reciprocity and so forth here. But I shall know fully even as I am fully known. Maybe he's saying I shall know fully then even as I am fully known now by God. And just doesn't use all those words. Maybe we should, I don't know the Greek here enough to, to, haven't read enough about it to say exactly what that should be. But the big line is the next one. And this is what he's, this is where he's been bringing the Corinthians. And now these three remain. After all these things I've written, Paul says, these three remain. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So we've spent a few month, a little bit of time here talking about what love is. Right? Action oriented. Verb, 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 verb. Let's talk about what faith is. Faith is, the best synonym for the word faith is trust. It's a heart word before it is an intellectual word. The only reason we, the New Testament constantly says, talks about believing in Jesus or believing in this is because we have lost the verb form of the word trust. The verb form of the word faith. Nobody says, I faithed yesterday or I'm faith thing today or I'm going to faith tomorrow, even though that's what the Greek is. The word faith as noun and as verb is all over the New Testament. We have to change all of the verbs into the word believe and it makes people think the want it makes them think it's all up here. But faith is a heart word. It's a trust word. Are you willing when we talk about believing in Jesus what we really mean is are you are you ready to entrust your life to the to Jesus and the good news proclaimed about him. It's this word. So hope is another word we get wrong. It's used a lot in our world. Um, I used, I talked, I, I wrote this a bit in the prayer that I wrote for the last time I was a liturgist on Sunday morning, that our hope is not the thin hope of the unbelieving secular world, that maybe things will get better someday. That's not what we're talking about. We know how things get. Again, it gets all back to perspective. Chances are we're all going to die before Jesus comes back. I don't know that. We will suffer hardships. Are those, do any of those mean that that is our end? No, it's not our end. There's a life after death. And there's the resurrection, life after life after death that awaits, that awaits us here. So, so much of it is, is, having, is having the right perspective. It's why Peter writes, Ah, you know, a day, a day for the Lord is like a thousand years for us. So, chill out. <laughs> okay? So, our hope is confidence. I think that's the best synonym for the word hope for Christians. It's confidence. In Jesus' return, grounded in the truth of Jesus' resurrection. As Paul writes, and we'll encounter in chapter 15, if Jesus was not resurrected, then we are to be pitied more than anyone. Because we we have placed our hope in a lie. But it's not a lie. Jesus was resurrected, and the resurrection is the proof that Jesus will return. So, trust, hope, good and wonderful and important and foundational to all things Christian, but at the top is what? what? If you put them in a triangle, you're going to put hope on one corner and faith on another corner, and what you're going to put on the top? Apex of the triangle, love. This is very Wesleyan. This this is Arminian. This is the insight that the place to start in understanding God is the statement that God is love. That's the place to start. Don't start with the idea, well, I'm going to understand God and I want to start with God being in control of everything or God being all-powerful or God being all-knowing or God being sovereign. Those are all true, in their ways, and we could talk about them at some length, but the real starting point, the shocking starting point, the scandalous starting point in the minds of most would be that God is love. Not not sentiment. See, is it sentiment for God? No. God's love is expressed in verbs all the way through Scripture. The verb of being born to a Galilean girl. The verb of being nailed to a cross. It's not sentiment. Yes. God is love, love is a verb, but you have to be careful with that because it can lead you to not seeing God as as having being, right? God has being. We don't have being, we're we're big masses of ever-moving becoming because we're constantly changing one second to the next, but God is pure being. God is God is personal, God has a will, God has a purpose. So if you carry the God is love, is a verb, is dynamic, is ever moving and all this stuff too far, you can end up with almost some Eastern ideas about God being spread out and embedded in all of creation. And that's what we really mean by God because creation is constantly moving and No, 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 there is God the Creator, there's God's creation, Um, the two don't mix, but go to Scripture. What do we find in Scripture? God who created a people to love and who would love God, and when they turned away from God and their rebellion against God, a story repeated countless times, God relentlessly pursued them. Even to the point of taking on human flesh and all of its frailties and suffering the most humiliating, terrible death the Romans had to mete out. Those are actions. Those are verbs. But you could go too far with it, like, like you could with anything. Lauren? Just to piggyback on
1: that. So, could you say, like, God's, God's activity is real...
0: God is active in the world. It's real. And the
1: activity is fueled by love because God is love. True?
0: And the activity is fueled by love. Why does God do what God love? Why does God do what God does? From love. Right. See John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see there's an action that follows the statement that God loves the world. So God's love is seen and expressed in what God does because that's what real love is. Otherwise, you know, sentiment, sentiment is great, but it never fed anybody. Yes.
1: Something, and then supplementing like something that endures, right? Like patients can endure in a world where, in Corinth, patients probably does not take. Like, or,
0: or in Plano, Texas, 2022, right? right? right?
1: Rich, so you can only imagine how hard that was for Paul to provide because what will endure, what does endure, what's reality in a context that is so
0: so. Paul provides a list of what endures.
1: Yeah,
0: we could also have an exercise where we all came up with a list of things that won't endure, right? And 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 this list of what endures is often kind of countercultural to the world, that certainly counter to the world that they lived in, the idea that anybody would sit at the bedside of a sick person they don't know was insane. Nobody did that in this world. It was Christians who began to sit at the bedsides of strangers. Um, so, yeah, so those of you who don't know, Abraham Smith is a professor of New Testament at Perkins, right, yeah? Sure. See Don, I, 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 let me sum up what you said in a way I heard once. It just stuck with me so well. God, God, God made the world in order to create the church. Right? It's God's love of humankind. <coughs> it just is why all these planets and stars exist. They exist to what end? Well, they're pretty you know, at times, but they exist so that we can exist. Otherwise, they have no purpose. They have no purpose. God made the world in order to make the church, which I think what you said to me. That's a little, little, little statement that has just stuck with me a lot over the years. Okay, anything else? Yes? I don't think so. It's like, who we, now let me repeat the question. Is Paul saying that the gifts, the stuff that make us up who we are here, do, is all of that left behind in the age to come and the resurrection? And the answer has to be no. Why does the answer have to be no? Because I'm still going to be me and you're still going to be you. And so you can't take all of the things that make up me and all of the things that make up you and leave them all behind. And Paul says what? Now I know in part, then I will know in full. So it is. he never says the part gets washed away. He just says it's in part, but now it's, it's kind of like... <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like one time I was taking a class in business school and honestly... I was lost. I didn't get it. I couldn't solve any of the work. I was just floundering. And I remember sitting in the library in Bedford Mass one day with all these cases open before me, trying. And all of a sudden the light bulb went on. (gasps) And I went back and 30 minutes solved everything that we had done the whole semester. Because it was just like, oh! Oh, 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 okay. Maybe it's a little bit like that, you know? Because I thought you said parts will disappear. I <clears throat> um, didn't know what that would mean. And that's well, He does say, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. It just has to be the partness. When Jesus is resurrected, is he still Jesus? Do they recognize him as Jesus? Right? He is. So Yeah, I just thought maybe we would leave the leave some parts behind and just take the log. That's all we would need when we get to heaven Well, I think when we get a little further along here we're gonna see that Paul would certainly want you to take your mind with you. Um up there, right? right. So those are good questions. But I I, I guess I'm Sensitive to people who sort of feel like when, when they're resurrected or Jesus somehow we're not ourselves, but we, we will be ourselves still. God loves us. Yeah.: we I we stuff, we Well, know. I think we leave the bad stuff. I'm with you on that. <laughs> so let's take all the bad stuff and leave it all behind. How about that? <laughs> Anything else? What? If there's no media room? Yeah, it's kind of like my joke about the fact that, you know, everybody's anxious for Jesus to return until we start to get closer to the closer to the Super Bowl, where the guys say, come on, just wait a week, okay? (laughs) Yes? Yes? That's why the way you typically hear people talk about hope, you have to leave that behind. Put that in in the world out there. Here, what Scripture means by hope is the sure confidence that Jesus was resurrected and that Jesus will return. That this is coming. It is the the sure confidence. Um, It's like when in Peter, I think, who writes, you know, be ready to provide a reason for the hope within. This hope that Peter's talking about is the confidence, be ready to offer reason for our confidence that Jesus will return. That all of this isn't going to just disappear into the cosmos. That our lives here have enduring meaning to be found in Christ. But that takes... We have, to, we have to sort of rise out of the clutches of the, of the day-to-day and the things that go wrong in our lives and the pain and suffering that happens in this world, to be able to see a larger picture which involves the life after death and, and our resurrection. So...
1: So I think hope is an overused word. It's just—it's it's just
0: It's—it—it's just just uh, it, like—it—it's like love is not a sentiment; it's an action. Love is not what Charlotte just described. Love is the sure confidence that Jesus will return. We redefine these words, right? Christians have to do a lot of that today. We have to do a lot of redefining of words. Or we're not understood, and we don't even understand ourselves then.
1: I feel like a good difference to Charlotte's question of the different, there's two types of hope the world's hope and our hope as Christians. In like the old Greek would say, like you hope on something, like hope on a foundation. Well, the foundation of the hope of the world is temporary and is not enduring. And the hope, like what you just said, is on Christ for Christians. That's what has to separate, right? It has to be that we hope on God. That That's another good way to God, put they're it. They're just different foundations. It's the same word. For, but they
0: get it. for those who okay. So let's let's take two people. Well, person person A, we'll call Bob. So Bob thinks that what he can see and touch in this world is all that there is, you know. And and Bob is a pretty intelligent guy, and. He knows that, well, this isn't always going to last. He's going to go in the ground and that'll be it, lights out, game over. And then even, you know, there's... The sun is slowly dying and all these other things these people want to... It's just fleeting. Maybe a long time fleeting, but fleeting. That's what his hope is grounded on. Which is not a very good ground for hope. As opposed to a Christian whose hope is grounded on Jesus, who has always been, is now, and ever shall be, and is, yes, most certainly going to return. The evidence of all of that is caught up in the resurrection of Jesus, which is why Paul's bringing all of this along that he's been writing and we've been talking about for these many weeks. And where is he going to bring them to? Chapter 15 the great chapter on the Resurrection. And we're not far from it. But it's where Paul brings all of this stuff to the great chapter on the Resurrection. Because it is the ground of our hope, it is the evidence for that what we proclaim to the world is true about Jesus, about the cross having meaning, about love being a verb, not sentiment. How do, why do we get to make these claims? Because Jesus was resurrected. Anything else? Good discussion. All of this out of see now now we've kind of yanked these chapter thirteen away from the wedding, haven't we? Yeah. You won't ever hear it the same way again. Anything else? Well, let's look forward into fourteen. a little bit. Um, you know, sometimes the headings in translations that the publisher puts there are helpful. Other times, not so much. I like the one in the NIV. In the, in the NIV Bible that I'm using here, the, the heading for this next section is intelligibility and in worship, intelligibility and in worship. All religions have a certain segment of people who are very focused on, on the mystical. We have Christians, we have ours. The Jews have those, focus on the Kabbalah and things like that. Muslims have theirs. That's the Sufis. Um, uh, uh, mystical unions with God, ecstatic. Expressions of worship and and stuff. And it seems that Paul is worried that the Corinthians are given over to some of that. And he will explain himself as to why he thinks that can be a problem. Okay? So, verse 14. Chapter 14, thank you Charlotte. Chapter 14, verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Now why would he say especially prophecy? What is prophecy? You've got to put this in, into your mind. Not really preaching. Bringing God's Word to God's people. So there is a supernatural element to it that would not he, because he will use the word prophesy and preach at the, you know together in a sentence. So he doesn't mean the same thing. And it's it's like when the prophets of old, or others would come forth, and God says, you know, that kind of thing. So if if Paul believes as he does, that there are people who in this creation of this brand-new, never-seen-before movement of Jesus' people, that there are people who have been given this gift to bring a word from God for God's people, then that's going to be something that I think he would view as helpful to people. Verse 2. For anyone who speaks in a tongue, now this tongue, this is not an intelligible language to people. This is not Acts 2. This is, if you look at the literature of the day, it's probably related to the idea that there is, there is an angelic dialect, as it were. And... So think of it as the language of heaven, or the language of the angels, or something. But the point is, nobody else can understand what, you're, what, you're, what this is all about, coming out of your mouth. For if anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God, well, let me start over. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God has to be that way because they can't speak to people because the people won't understand a thing they're saying. Okay? If it's uh, it's an angelic dialect, then God will, but (laughs) not you and me. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. And later Paul will say that he speaks when he's by himself. He speaks in tongues. N.T. Wright has said that he speaks in tongues. It's Not anything I've ever experienced. I am often unintelligible, but... Okay. Okay, so tongue speaking results in no understanding on people's part. God, yes, and people, no. But the one who prophesies speaks to people in Greek or in English or whatever the language is, for their strengthening, their encouraging and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, builds up themselves. But the one who prophesies edifies the church, builds up the church. The difference being if you speak in tongues, you're only going to, it could only help yourself but speaking words of prophecy or other things that are in intelligible language can help build up everybody. So verse 5, he says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. Remember that two-by-two grid. Paul, if you take all of Paul's stuff, do what builds up the church, do what is a good witness to others, avoid what tears down the church, avoid what is a poor witness um, to Jesus, poor witness to others. I would like everyone, verse 5, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, by which he simply means, well, goodness, it has to be more helpful to more people. Unless someone interprets, okay, that's where the tongue speaker gets up and they're, I won't use the word babbling, but they're, whatever they're saying, it's not intelligible. But somebody else says, well, you know, um, brother Bob, again, to use Bob, brother Bob is saying X, Y, Z. Now, has, have any of you been in a church in which tongue speaking happens? Okay. Were there people who stood up to interpret it? No? No. At Mount Perrin the people would stand up to interpret it, right, Patty?
1: Yes. What was confusing, though, to me...
0: Speak up, if you could.
1: What was confusing to me is that one time when I was there, two people, it's a very large church in Atlanta, Mount Perrin, Church of God, and two people started talking and interpreting at the same time and they were both saying something completely different.
0: <coughs> That's not helpful. So Patty's saying she was she, at this church where her some of her family once went. So, so the tongue speaker gets up, two interpreters get up, they're supposedly interpreting what this tongue speaker is saying, but they're saying the utter opposite of each other. A more common observation is that the interpretation is so general so general that it could be any time, sort of, sort of, any any place kind of thing. So does the Chinese speaker ever interpret what they said? Does that ever happen? No. 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 Nope, it's up to others to do that. That's the gift of interpretation. Paul Paul will say that's the gift of interpretation. Okay? So he says... But you get the fact that for the tongue to be to be to build up the church, it has to be interpreted, (coughs) or it only has meaning to the tongue speaker, which can't build up the church. Is that clear? To me, that's like pretty clear. Yes. So, (coughs) does
1: the interpreter do they go to school? How do they? they well,
0: obviously, each of them thought that they got a special revelation from God. And one of them, I guess, didn't. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> neither did. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it, the for that? What? Yeah, for that, yeah. I don't think there are schools for uh, interpreting <laughs> tongues. <laughs> no, no. It's something that happens spontaneously. It just happens. Lauren stands up and she starts speaking in tongues and then... We, no, she's saying no, 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 not going to happen. Jan
1: tells me I speak in tongues
0: all the time. Yeah, which is probably true, but we'll talk about the reason for that later. Okay, so look at verse 6. We're, we're just going to read on a little bit more because this is really the gist of the, the whole this whole section. So he says, Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues... What good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? All of those can help people because for one, they're all going to be spoken in Greek. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the pipe or harp how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a a distinction in the notes by which he means if you just pick up a musical instrument and you started banging around on it well what's the good in that i realize some of you are thinking that is actually quite a few rock and roll bands i've heard in the course of my life Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? Because trumpets were used, as they are still, to call people and give out instructions on the battlefield. And if it's all just a bunch of meaningless sound coming out, nothing's going to happen. No action's going to happen. Nobody's going to be spurred on to anything. And then verse 9, he says, So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words... "...with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning." Because Paul's a traveler, he's a learned man, he's run into different languages. But the point of language is to enable us to convey meaning to one another. So all languages convey meaning. Even if we can't speak that language, we know that, you know, German conveys meaning, for example. Verse 11. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone's saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So, if one of you were to stand up and witness to the good news in Ukrainian... It's not going to do me a bit of good, right? I love this particular passage because it's so straightforward. <laughs> Verse 12. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So he's... What are they focused on? Oh, now We're now 14 chapters into this letter. It's long. They are very given over to these extravagant expressions of the Spirit and so forth. And Paul says, look, if it doesn't build up the church, if it can't be a good witness to others, then really, really, kind of what's the point? What's the point of it? Which I understand. If we brought in a preacher next next Saturday at 9.30 that spoke a language that none of us did, how much could you get out of the sermon? Nothing. Verse 13. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say." So there he puts the two together. I don't think that's generally what happens now in charismatic churches. Typically the tongue speakers and the interpreters are different people, but the what? Is Paul focused on the process? No. But there must be interpretation or it, it can't help anybody except the tongue speaker. For if I pray in a tongue, My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what do you think he means by that? His mind is unfruitful. The mind isn't involved in this tongue speaking. It just sort of comes out. For the mind to be involved, what would come out would be something intelligible. You can't think, you can't think, think without language try it you can't now I, I've known people who had multiple languages I remember I went to high school with a girl whose parents were um, missionaries in Portugal, in Brazil for a long time and she said well I read in English but all of my arithmetic I do in Portuguese and I said, What do you mean you do arithmetic in Portuguese? She, she said, Nothing we think about is divorced from the language we speak. Nothing. Can't do it. Doesn't happen. You can, you can conjure up an image, but your interpretation of that image is going to be, oh, it's a red dress. Whatever, you know, kind of whatever it is. So. The one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. The mind is unengaged. Remember what Paul said a little bit earlier? When I was a child, I thought like a child. I acted like a child. Paul's not a child. He's an adult now. One of the, uh, maybe we'll just finish with this. One of the most important verses in Romans is when Paul says, you know, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we will know what the will of God is, what is pleasing and good, right? So Paul understands that we come to this with our heart, our soul, and our mind and our strength. And tug speaking is just not something that engages the mind. So when we come back next week, we'll pick it up there in chapter 14, we may finish chapter 14, and if we do, we will begin our journey through chapter 15. Well, we, I think we will be a little while, because it's so so fundamental to all things Christian. So, um, Patty, did you have anything from anybody out there? I think in our prayers, gosh, in particular we want to remember to lift up in prayer um, the, the folks in Florida. This hurricane is bearing down on them. And it's just, you know, many of us have family there, other things. So, in any event, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, indeed our thoughts and our prayers are with the people in Florida. This hurricane, we pray that the hurricane would lose would lose its strength and, and just not be as terrible as people think it will be, be with those who are going to be in its path, give them, reassure them and uh, remind them that indeed you are with them in all things. Um, We have a lot of prayers in our hearts that we lift up to you now, including those we probably couldn't even articulate, but we rest comfortably in that, that indeed, You know our hearts better than we do. Um, And just bring us back together next week, safe and sound and ready to move on in Paul's letter. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.